And let's pray before we start. Holy Spirit, come and stir our hearts, our minds and our souls to believe and to take hold of the truths of who you are, Jesus. Amen. Wow, these are two incredible stories, aren't they? Of someone being raised from death and the other being healed when they're so close to death, even though they were physically apart from Jesus. And they kind of bang us over the head. I'm using that phrase that Ali likes to use. They bang us over the head. They wake us up. They kind of make us take notice of Jesus's authority yet again. And this idea of Jesus' authority is something that Luke's been exposing us to in his presentation of Jesus so far, isn't it? And coming off the back of his sermon on the plane, which we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks, I think these two healings highlight the nature of Jesus' heart and kingdom that he's just been preaching about. They're visual demonstrations, if you like, about what he's just been teaching. So we see Jesus' authority exercised by his presence and his words and extended over space and distance and over disease and death. I think Luke wants our faith in Jesus to be awakened, to be aroused and inspired as we read this. But also what hits us is the incredible faith of the Roman centurion, a faith that actually amazes Jesus and causes him to wonder and to marvel and that actually inspires him to work wonders. So that's why I've called this message today, Faith Inspiring Wonders. But before we get into these miracle stories, I want you to just take notice of your initial reaction to these healings. Do you feel kind of sceptical? Do they make you kind of wonder and want to try to understand? Do you hear them and wish that your faith was like that, that that you'd see miracles like that happen as a result of your prayers? Or are you wondering about the the big elephant in the room question, if Jesus raised people from death, does he still raise people from death today? And if so, why didn't he bring my husband, my child, my parent, my friend back from death? If he brought the widow's son back to life, why didn't he do that miracle for me? Notice the questions and the reactions that you have. And as we work through this passage, listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. So let's start with the centurion servant. So a Roman centurion, he was someone who was in charge of a hundred soldiers. To the Jewish people, he was like an occupying commander. Yet he was surprisingly sympathetic towards Judaism. We read in verse 5 that he loved their nation and had built a synagogue to support their community of faith. So despite his military role and being a man of great power and authority, he comes across as a person of peace who respected the Jewish people. In verse 3, we are told that he had heard of Jesus. News of Jesus, this Jewish rabbi who was doing miracles and was teaching swathes of people about God's kingdom and God's presence, had reached the powers that be. 
Yet rather than feeling threatened by Jesus, this centurion senses something about him and is humble enough to bring his need before Jesus and to ask for his servant's healing. And look at how he expresses this humility in verse 6. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to him to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. And this is quite different to how the Jewish elders had just pleaded for Jesus to come. They had pleaded on the basis of the centurion's merit that he was someone who was deserving to have Jesus come and heal his servant. But the centurion knows that he doesn't deserve to have Jesus trouble himself with this and is in fact not worthy to even come and approach Jesus himself. And when we think about it, this does seem the right way to approach Jesus, doesn't it? Those who have a sense of the holiness and the goodness and the power of Jesus ought to approach him with such humility. I am not worthy, Lord. And this statement is itself an expression of awe and reverence, of acknowledging that we stand before a mighty and holy God. But the centurion doesn't stop there or leave it at that. He doesn't let his sense of unworthiness detract from his trust in the willing mercy of God. Because his humility is grounded not in who he is, but in who he believes Jesus is. One with powerful authority who exercises the mercy of God by his very word. So in verse 7, he says, But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. You see, the centurion understood himself and his servant as at and under the mercy of Jesus. And Jesus' command is all that is needed. R.C. Sproul, he was an American Reformed theologian and pastor who died about five years ago. He made a wonderful point. He says, Here was a man who had stood before generals, maybe even the emperor of Rome, who knew somehow that in Christ he was dealing with one who exercised consummate lordship. He understood authority. And he understood that Jesus had it. He understood that Jesus had a kind of authority that gave him the ability to have power over life and over death. He understood the obvious manifestation of God incarnate. The centurion grasped the very nature of who Jesus is and the nature of his authority. So he says, only say the word and my servant will be healed. Like the person that Jesus described at the end of his sermon on the plain that we heard about last week, the centurion has the firm foundation of a concrete faith in Jesus, which informs all of his approach to life. 
And Jesus is astonished. It says he's amazed. He is in wonder at such faith, which he hasn't even seen, even among the people of Israel who should have recognised and who were meant to recognise the presence and the hand of God. (laughs) And so we read that as a result of this encounter, then the centurion's servant was made well. His faith inspired Jesus to do wonders. So Luke, I think, wants us to see a couple of things here. Firstly, that no one is outside the reach of God's loving mercy in Jesus. Even an occupying military leader, the stereotypical epitome of an enemy for the Jewish people, is included within the loving reach of God. Secondly, Jesus' authority extends then to all people. He's more than a Jewish rabbi. His presence yields authority for everyone, no matter their ethnicity or culture. And not only that, but his authority extends over space and distance and disease. Jesus can heal without even being physically present, physically close to the person he's healing. And thirdly, Luke wants us to notice how Jesus is touched and moved to exercise his authority on our behalf through humble faith. It's faith that inspires wonders. Let's, let's hold those ideas as we look to the next part of this passage. So we read that Jesus and his disciples then, um, oh, sorry, and the great crowd of people that were following Jesus, they then enter um, the town of Nain. And right away they're confronted with a funeral procession for the only son of a widow. And we notice that she's actually almost the total opposite of the Roman centurion. This woman was experiencing deep tragedy and was left with nothing, with no one. She had now no security whatsoever, socially or financially. She was utterly vulnerable, broken and defenceless. As you might know, widows in that culture couldn't inherit. So when their husband died, they were dependent on their sons, if they had any, to provide for them and look after them. And then if their son died, they were dependent on charity from their community. And this is what had happened. This woman's only son had been taken from her. And not only does she feel the pain of that tragic loss of her son, but also the fear of facing life in poverty alone. Let's read from verse 13. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. Jesus saw this woman's heart, her pain, her distress and that that deep gut-wrenching grief. And he connected personally with it. His heart went out to her. And this is an expression of deep, sincere empathy and understanding. His heart felt her heart. Jesus sees her. He knows her. And he knows what to do. 
But then he says something that we would probably think uh, was quite a bit insensitive. <laughs> um, probably the worst thing that one could possibly say, don't cry. <laughs> but actually, um, his comfort was more real. His comfort was far greater than the comfort of any of those in the crowd mourning with her because he's about to do something that no one expected or even imagined. He's about to become for her, her protector, defender, guardian and kinsman redeemer. For those who aren't familiar with that term, a kinsman redeemer is like the nearest relative who stepped in to take responsibility for a widow who didn't have an heir. Someone who redeems the widow's situation in the most powerful way, providing her with safety, security, a home and provision for her life. If you know your Old Testament, you will know that Boaz was Ruth's kinsman redeemer. And he pointed to the one who would become who would who would come to the one to come sorry who would be the redeemer of all so jesus is about to offer redemption to the most deeply afflicted person in the most astounding and kind kindest of ways so in verse 14 we read then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on and the bearers stood still he said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. With his commanding words, Jesus brings this dead man back to life. You see, Jesus now shows how his authority and his authoritative word even overrides death. This is almost unbelievable, isn't it? And can you imagine the absolute wonder and indescribable joy that the mother and this whole community would be feeling? And Luke tells us that the crowd had started putting the pieces together and were joining the dots. Just like Elijah and Elisha, these great prophets in the Old Testament who had performed this miracle of raising the dead, this man, Jesus, was able to do the same thing. And in fact, he could do it with just the power of his word. And just like the prophecy of Ezekiel, where God recreated life from dead, dry bones, this man, Jesus, was speaking life right into death. At the very least, Jesus was a great prophet of God. And they realized that God was indeed in their midst through this man, Jesus. So the crowds are filled with awe. They grasp something profound and wonderful about Jesus. This wonder was faith-inspiring. And they praised God and they spread the news about this wonderful miracle and the man who did it. You see, no one and no thing is outside of God's mercy in Jesus. Not a powerful Roman commander and not a lowly forsaken widow. Not disease and not even death. 
Now, I know that some sceptics and cynics might be thinking, well, if Jesus did that miracle for that widow, why didn't Jesus do so many more miracles like that? Why didn't he raise heaps more people from death? It's actually really interesting to think that even with such authority and such depth of compassion and such power, Jesus only raised a couple of people from death. We know of Lazarus and Jairus' daughter as well. And then these people would have later died permanently. (laughs) Even in Jesus' ministry, these sorts of miracles weren't the norm, but were exceptional glimpses into a future reality to come. So they're a foretaste of the future resurrection that God promises to those who believe in Jesus. And then the Bible never explains why God chose those particular people to bring back to life. So in a world where death is a reality for everyone, miracles of this kind aren't to be expected for everyone. And to ask with furious disappointment why God didn't bring a loved one back to life is to deny the universal reality of death in our world and the goodness and mercy of God when he does intervene in this incredible way. But what about after Jesus? Have dead people been raised since? Well, we have the accounts um, in Acts chapters 9 and 20 of the apostles Peter and Paul who each raised a dead person. Uh, But you might think, oh, they were apostles. What about other Christians? Have other Christians ever done it? And so I did some research, um, and there are stories throughout history since Jesus' resurrection of people being brought back to life by the work of God. And even in recent history, there are a number of genuine medically verified stories of this happening. So I'm going to share one of these now. Um, And this is one that happened in Australia, and actually not that long ago, back in 2008. So um, this is a photo of a man named Dr. Sean George on the left with his wife, Sherry, and his son. Um, And so the story, um, what happened was um, Dr. Sean was uh, on his way uh, home to Kalgoorlie in WA, driving the 400 k's from Esperance where he and his intern had been working at their specialist clinic. And as they were driving, he started to feel chest pain and discomfort in his chest. And this went on for a while. And after driving for hours, they approached a town called Kembalda, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, where there was a really small medical clinic. And because of the discomfort in his chest and the pain that hadn't gone away, Dr. Sean had an urgent sense that he needed to get to the clinic. When they got there, he asked them to do an ECG. So he was a doctor in that region. The medical people knew him, so he was able to ask them to do an ECG. And he read it, and it showed that he was having a heart attack. So they administered some drugs, um, but 11 minutes later, his heart completely stopped. Over the following 70 minutes, the team in Kambalda worked with paramedics um, to save his life. In the meantime, his wife Sherry and other medical staff at Kalgoorlie Hospital were on their way to him. Now, normally after 20 minutes of no oxygen to the brain, the organ is pretty much dead. Even with the best CPR, the outcome is very poor. So apparently that's why doctors don't usually try to resuscitate people for, more than, for longer than 20 to 30 minutes. And they worked on Sean for 70 minutes knowing that his wife was on her way. 
but after 13 electrical shocks from a defibrillator and over 4,000 cardiac compressions, they all agreed to stop CPR and all life support measures, just except for oxygen, to the lungs. Sean had been flatlined asystole for 37 minutes. It was cold and blue and was considered medically dead. His wife Sherry arrived 10 minutes later and the senior physician there gave Sherry the terrible news. Sean was gone and she could go in and say goodbye. Sherry walked in, saw his body, took his cold hand in hers and prayed a simple silent prayer. Lord Jesus, Sean is only 39, I'm only 38 and we have a 10 year old son. I need a miracle. Immediately, Sean's heartbeat came back. He was then rushed to Kalgoorlie Hospital and then on to Perth Hospital where he received heart surgery to clear a blocked artery. After a few days, Sean was completely conscious with normal brain function and memory perfectly intact. Medically, this is absolutely impossible. This could only have been a miracle by the hand of God. Dr. Sean and his wife Sherry are practicing Christians and they give glory to Jesus for this miracle. And of course they love sharing their amazing story with others. And this is just so inspiring, isn't it? Sorry, I didn't show you that picture as well. So inspiring that God is still today doing these kinds of miracles. So friends, don't shrink back from believing and praying I once heard it said, when I don't pray um, for healing, I don't see much happen. But when I pray for healing for everyone, I sometimes see people healed. <laughs> Friends, maybe we need to be more bold in our prayers and praying with the kind of faith that trusts that when Jesus is present in a desperate situation, he knows what he needs to do and he does it. Just like the way he was present for the widow and her son, we can trust that when we've prayed Jesus' presence into a situation, that he sees it. He sees the people we're praying for and he knows them inside and out. And his heart goes out to them too. And he does what he needs to do. We can trust that he is working. And we can trust that beautiful truth that no one is outside the reach of the mercy of God in Jesus. Oh, how we need to keep reminding ourselves of this truth. And today I just want to acknowledge that there might be people here among us today or watching online. People who feel like you're that person, that you're not noticed by God, that you're too messed up, too broken, too unworthy to be noticed by God. Let me tell you, just like the widow who lost her son and no longer felt noticed by God, Jesus is walking right up to you. He sees you and his heart is going out to you. Let him comfort you. Let him touch your heart. Let him do what he needs to do with you.